Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Stephen M. Underhill to discuss his book, The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI. Thanks for tuning in. In his new book, The Manufacture of Consent, Dr. Underhill treats J. Edgar Hoover's tenure as FBI director as a case study in political power, focusing on the rhetorical nature of that power. He analyzes Hoover's relationship with the presidency, the press, and the film industry to reveal the ways in which Hoover was able to use prevailing discourses of racial, gender, class, and religious hierarchies to dominate the media and to create and sustain the role of the FBI in United States society. Thus, the book illuminates both the history of the FBI and the political and ideological debates of the era. As Ned O'Gorman puts it, the book is a brilliant investigation into the ways J. Edgar Hoover co-opted the rhetorical themes and techniques of 20th century American liberals and progressives to fortify a virtual American police state. Dr. Underhill is Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Marshall University. He served as the lead reference person for classified FBI and Department of Justice textual records at the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration in College Park, Maryland, from 2007 to 2012. Thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to join us today. Hello, Kurt. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. And one of the things I'm super excited to discuss with you is the origin of your book. In your acknowledgments, you talk a little bit about how um, the work grew out of a field trip to the National Archives that eventually became employment there. Could you tell us a little bit about how encountering the collection of Hoover's materials at the archives turned into the manufacture of consent? I would love to. I started my PhD work in the Department of Communication at the University of Maryland in fall 2005. Me and my classmate Tim Barney both mentioned in our application materials that we were interested in the Cold War. In response, my advisor, Sean Perry Giles, taught a course on the Cold War presidency. She assigned a term paper that required us to visit the National Archives, which is right next door to the university. I needed a topic for the paper, and Hoover jumped out as an interesting Cold War figure. But I only knew him from pop cultural references. So I approached the circulation desk and asked if they had anything on Hoover, and it turned out that they were showcasing his official and confidential records. These files are a fragment of his larger collection of gossip that he collected on his enemies for leverage. He was creepy, and I was hooked. And I was taken by, in these government records, we had something that was so overtly wrong. Hoover's records, the official and confidential records in particular, were just clearly blackmail records, and they were accumulated through spying on people's private lives. And so I decided that was worth a dissertation topic. So I wanted to research it, and I wanted to write about him. But it occurred to me that I could learn more about the records at the National Archives if I worked there. So the next summer, uh, summer of 2006, my wife and I both took student employment there, uh, mainly just carting boxes around. Toward the end of 2007 or so, I asked if I could work with FBI records, and the archivist who does those records had retired, and the Bush administration had recently cut the appropriation for the National Archives, so they, they needed somebody to do the work, but they couldn't pay, hire a full-time archivist. So they accepted my offer, 
uh, and they put me in charge of FBI records and DOJ records. So when when you say they put you in charge of those kinds of records, what does that work look like? What what were you doing with them? Okay, so imagine a Walmart size file cabinet. Now imagine that letters are coming in from all over the world saying, I would like a duplication of a particular piece of paper. It is your job then to learn this warehouse of records and be able to locate needles in haystacks. And so that became kind of a second job for me while I'm working on my PhD at the University of Maryland is learning this haystack of records so I could respond to these letters. Also, learning the records uh, to help me do my research. Could, could, could you say a little bit about what the Hoover collection is like? You mentioned a little bit about the secret dossiers and the collections of blackmail records that he was engaged in. What kinds of materials do they have uh, from the Hoover administration? It's vast. So you have a classification system uh, that goes, you know, hundreds of different classifications. And so you have thousands of records on all sorts of things. Uh, from kidnapping to bank robbery to larceny, it goes on and on and on. But as a rhetoric student, I was interested in the propaganda. And so I geared myself, I, w- I was very interested in seeing what they had in, in terms of what he was doing with media. And so he has a speech file that goes on for thousands of pages. And these are just speeches that he delivered himself over his lifetime. Uh, and also the, the, his executive officers were also expected to be delivering speeches regularly as well, as well as his special agents. So you just imagine a very large speech file. Also, because the FBI is in D.C. and has this network of field offices across the country, it allowed people in D.C. to be very present in local spaces. So another body of records that was of interest to me is J. Edgar Hoover's scrapbooks. And Hoover ordered FBI agents in the field offices to collect every scrap of newspaper or magazine or media that mentioned him or the FBI. So you have uh, hundreds of boxes that span just thousands of pages of uh, newspaper clippings arranged chronologically, all about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And those were of interest to researchers and uh, as well to me. And then lastly, while I was there, uh, Classification 94 turned up. Uh, and they had just created the index, or they were working on the index perhaps when I took over, but the index was created while I was there. And classification 94, just straightforward propaganda records, although the word frequently used uh, is public relations. In these records, it's the FBI working on film scripts, radio scripts, TV scripts, and correspondence files with newspaper journalists and scholarly journal editors and all, all, all types of editors, because Part of the special agent's jobs in the field offices was to be present in all local media. And so in this classification, you have the correspondence that got created by that work. And why they wanted access to local media is because headquarters would plant stories in newspapers across the country. And these records are kind of like a receipt from this process of having back and forth with local media personnel to uh, create records that, or to create media artifacts that look like they were homegrown coming out of kind of an organic process, but actually it was people in Washington, D.C. dropping files or dropping stories for them to be picked up in local presses. And then, of course, you have processes, uh, you know, the media receipt that happens when you are in Washington, D.C., uh, quietly making movies uh, in Hollywood. 
And so it's the correspondences back and forth uh, between the FBI and people in the film studio system in making movies. It's really fascinating how J. Edgar Hoover was using that kind of activity to craft, you know, the FBI's image in the, in the culture and in the public eye. I hadn't realized that it had that archival dimension, like right away from the start, that he was asking for those scrapbooks. And that so at the same time as they're generating this public image for the FBI, they're also making an archive, like making a history of what the institution is and, and what it's been you know, doing, keeping this kind of quiet record. Yeah. And with this, it was a way to monitor, right? They developed a system of who, is, who are the friendly publications and who are the unfriendly publications. And if you're a friendly publication, it meant you got access to FBI resources. And this could be information. This could be any type of material resource that uh, the FBI could lend, like do you want an FBI agent to show up at an event and give a speech? If you're in Hollywood, do you want props? Do you want FBI agents as extras? Do you want them to show up as advisors for how to make them, you know, how, how to make something look real? And in a world where uh, crime sells newspapers, because, right, it's spectacular. You know, if, if, if you see a, one newspaper is covering a bank heist and another newspaper is not, the newspaper that's covering the bank heist gets sold. And so it was a way to pick winners and losers in media. One of the arguments that you make in the book is that through all of this activity, which Hoover used to propagandize the FBI and, and prop up other institutions that they supported and that supported the mission of the FBI, is that he used what you call rhetorical realism to help conflate nationalism and national security. In addition to the sort of activities that they were about, planting news stories and contributing to movies and things, what else did Hoover do to demonstrate rhetorical re realism? And maybe what do you mean by that term? Okay, so rhetorical realism gets to an issue of style. And I take style seriously here to suggest that style itself has meaning. And by rhetorical realism, what I did is I overlapped two existing ideas, literary realism and political realism. Literary realism is a movement that comes out of Anglo-American nationalism. And by that, what I mean is, I go back to the progressive era, and you have this movement of artists, and they create a literary genre that is responding to mass immigration and urbanization, and they start talking about America as being under threat. And by America, they meant Anglos, and, and obviously that means white people. And by worrying about Anglos, it highlighted that they were concerned that you had too many Catholics coming from Italy and from Ireland. And this is an era where Catholics were not counted as white people. And they had this attitude that the race, the, the white Anglo race was being attacked. And they infused the genre with a Darwinian logic. And so different types of people were called disease, were called rats, were called vermin, were called snakes, cancer, parasite. It went on, this type of like biological language. And in the progressive era, it, it, it was a way for white, traditional white, old stock Americans to talk about how America was changing. And it, it, it expressed their anxieties about what was, what was going on with the rise of immigrants coming in and everybody moving into cities and the cities becoming very urban. Political realism is the idea that 
power is the ultimate expression of politics. And that if you are to organize a state successfully, you are going to attempt to maximize its power so you can defend it on the international stage from other countries, but also so you can swat down any type of agitation group that tries to come up. And so by rhetorical realism, what I'm saying is that we see Hoover in all this propaganda speak with a style that says America culturally is under attack. And the need, the solution is police power to go after and curb and to stop anybody or any threats to the old stock traditions. And essentially, it's white supremacy. I wonder if we could pick a little more at the what you're calling literary realism. I, I might think of it in terms of like the culture more broadly. What are some of the, I wonder if you could provide examples of, of what would count as a literary realist text and maybe what are some of the characteristics of that kind of aesthetic that you see being translated into the propaganda work that Hoover was engaged in? Sure. So a, a classic realist would be somebody like Jack London. And operating uh, in the earlier 1900s, literary realism takes a turn in the 1890s when the frontier officially closes. And at this moment, the genre itself is infused with the frontier myth. And so when this genre gets tweaked this little bit, there's this debate. Uh, is it a distinct genre now or is it a spinoff and a continuation, but just, you know, with a new flavor of the realism that preceded it? But anyways, this new flavor is called literary naturalism. And so Jack London is a prime example of literary naturalism because you can think of uh, texts, you can think about books like Call of the Wild where it's a book about animals and the animals have instincts and those instincts uh, are determined. The, the instinct takes over. It's not about logic. It's about primordial dominance. And it's this type of logic that gets fused into politics that we are, we're, we're not here to debate, you know, a high text of what is morality or what is right and wrong, we're just going to say there is a natural order uh, and that uh, it's only natural that white people should dominate. And this is also related to movements toward eugenics at the, in the period, right? The sort of the new exciting science of eugenic differences and uh, manipulation of populations. I'm glad you brought that up. Thinking about eugenics, if you step back, the writers of literary realism, they, 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 are, they come from Anglo-Saxon lines. Uh, and Anglo-Saxonism itself is an ideology that traces back to, I mean, it, it's old, it traces back to the Puritan arrival. You have it in England. It flourishes in America. So the, the, the Puritans talk to, identify themselves as Anglo-Saxons. And then the writers in the progressive era, they look back to those Puritans to say, they're Anglo-Saxon, we're Anglo-Saxon, we are their posterity. Uh, this America belongs to us. Now, the ideology of Anglo-Saxonism that moves across the centuries in America, it's also spreading in England, but it also spreads in Germany. And it becomes, and, and it, it, it undergirds the, the rise of Nazism and Hitler. And that you have eugenics in America and you have eugenics in Germany. In the, uh, the, in the progressive era and in, the, in, in this time period is not a surprise because you have 
an ideology that is very hospitable to the scientific racism that flourishes in this time period. Hitler in Mein Kampf talks about how he wants to do to the Jews in Germany what America did to the Native Americans. And he says, look, America got it right. And there's this forgotten history that the Nazis looked at America with admiration. And there's a, there was a cross-pollination of ideas and beliefs that happened between America and Germany in, in this time period. And I argue that rhetorical realism picks up this ideology and the style. When you call people a rat, when you call, when you call a person vermin, when you call people vermin, when you call people disease, when you call people parasite, it picks up this ideology. The style, I argue, expresses this ideology. And so I then say that when you look at Hoover's propaganda, when you start getting into all those speeches and all the movies and all the newspaper articles and everything else, these are the patterns that emerge. Calling people viruses, calling people vermin, calling people uh, language that comes out of eugenics. You mentioned the technique of, of labeling certain populations as, as animals or subhuman or you know, not belonging to the, the glorious Anglo-Saxon heritage. What are some of the other themes in Hoover's rhetoric? I know one that you talk about quite a bit in the book is masculinity. Right, and this also comes from uh, that moment in the progressive era. Literary realism is marked by, and literary naturalism in particular, so that the later phase of literary realism is marked by men feeling emasculated. And the problem was with urbanization, men were moving from the country into cities and they're taking jobs in bureaucracies where suddenly they had bosses. And this felt like their manhood was being taken from them. They were no longer rugged individualists. So in the genre of literary realism, there is this pattern of discussing men, real men, as men who uh, would fight and would kill and would just, I mean, savage is what they were going for. That's what the writers were, were going for. They were pulling from uh, how Native Americans were thought about and then taking those qualities of willing to fight with your hands and get dirty and kill for survival. Uh, and then scripting it onto white men as what was necessary for survival. And if you're Hoover, this was very helpful because Hoover in the 1930s suddenly has to worry about critical newspaper men beginning to document that they thought he was gay. And so he had the problem of having to show, having to prove that he was straight because such rumors obviously could tank him back in, back in the 1930s. And so he cloaked himself in realism because there was this attitude that heterosexual men were adept and it was a natural thing for them to fight. And so by using the style, it was uh, a nice cover strategy for him because it allowed him to demonstrate something that's hard to demonstrate. Which is virility and authority and other kinds of things that we associate with traditional masculinity. Yeah, but with that, and therefore heterosexual. Yeah. Right, and therefore heterosexual. A, a gay man could not be those things, so the logic went. And so therefore, I am these things, so I must be straight. Yeah. 
And all of this, I mean, one thing I'm thinking of is the sort of the New Deal context here. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, because one of the things that that you explore in the book and that's sort of fascinating about the rise of, of J. Edgar Hoover is that you have this sort of law and order American nationalist project happening at the same time as we're having FDR's New Deal, which is you know, extending social safety nets and presumably, you know, bringing in some people who have maybe been neglected by the project or at least presenting itself in some ways as though it is. Could you say a little bit about how that context interacts with Hoover's activities? Yeah, thank you for that question. That is very interesting. And this is one of the questions that guided my my research. Why Why did or how could FDR empower him? So if you go back to the moment, FDR is struggling with getting support from conservatives. Uh, and he's struggling to get America to commit to drastically reimagining economic policy. And he needs a way to show that the New Deal can get things done that the Hoover administration before it could not. And so it's 1933, FDR had given a speech, his first inaugural, uh, asking for the equivalent of war powers to fight the depression. You fast forward a few months and you have the attorney general declare a war on crime after uh, there were some spectacular bank robberies. And Hoover then steps up and he says, fine, if there's a war on crime, then I'm its general. And FDR likes this because having the FBI with this propaganda mechanism highlighting and showcasing and making a spectacle of going after kidnappers and bank robbers after the debacle of the Lindbergh baby case was a way to illustrate or demonstrate to Americans what the New Deal could accomplish, what expanded federal powers could accomplish. And this also solved a problem for J. Edgar because At the start of the New Deal, the Bureau of Prisons was much more the darling of the DOJ. And at that point, the Bureau of Prisons was a relatively young agency, and it was committed to rehabilitating criminals. But it made little sense to rehabilitate criminals with the Bureau of Prisons if you have an FBI director celebrating capturing and killing criminals. And so you have this tension within the New Deal. You have FDR on one hand happy for the good publicity, but with it, it's undercutting inside the DOJ the idealist fervor of the New Deal that, w- that wanted to uplift poor people. And so FDR kind of makes a deal with the devil, and he doesn't get that Hoover was never a committed or devoted New Dealer, but an opportunist. And time would come where eventually uh, Hoover would betray the New Deal and deliver us into the Cold War hellscape that followed it. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Stephen M. Underhill, the author of The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI. I want to follow on the heels of that because one of the real delicate things that happens over the course of your book is you look at the ways in which Hoover is able to, in his, in his rhetoric and in his public you know, persona and in the kinds of activities that the FBI was uh, engaged in culturally, is able to come across as though he is part of the New Deal project, as though he's supporting the president, 
but also send out those signals to the people who are resistant to the FB, FDR's New Deal and the, the direction in which the government is headed. Could you say a little bit about what, how that manifests, that tension between them in the, in the rhetoric itself? Sure. So in the first two chapters, well, first I'd like to say I define the New Deal as the presidencies of FDR and Truman. So when I say New Deal, I mean 1933 to January of 1953. In the 1930s and the first half of the 1940s, we have rhetoric uh, that is dancing with the FBI, is dancing between the FBI and FDR. So during the war on crime, which is 1933 to 1938, it's the gangster era. So think about John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, those names that we all know because the propaganda was so rich. Hoover is running around saying, look at what the FBI can do because we have expanded power from the president. And FDR is saying the same thing. Because I have expanded federal law enforcement, we can get these gangsters. And then you fast forward to World War II. FDR has a similar problem like he had before. Namely, he wanted to go to war, but opposition did not. Opposition won. Uh, and his opposition this time, though, was bipartisan. Everyone was isolationist. Like FDR, it's surprising how much FDR wanted to intervene considering how isolationist everyone else was. And so he needed a way to discredit isolationists or he wanted to discredit isolationists and, and he felt suspicious of isolationists that, that they, were not, they were not moved to fight. The FBI at that point begins to secretly whisper into FDR's ear that the reason isolationists are isolationists in Congress is because they are secretly sympathetic with Germany and the Nazis. And FDR responds, he responds publicly, and he says, uh, America has the problem of the fifth column. And the fifth column is the idea that, uh, it's borrowing a metaphor from the Spanish Civil War, where General Mola says there are four columns of troops surrounding the capital, and we have a fifth column of subversives fighting within. So FDR picks this up, and he starts saying, America has a problem of a fifth column. There's a fifth column in America. And what he's saying is that America is suffering from the problem of subversives. Hoover says, you're right, and he piggybacks, and he starts going around campaigning widely talking about how America is suffering and is vulnerable from subversives. Now, because Hoover is speaking in the style of rhetorical realism, when he talks about subversives, audiences who understand, who are coming out of the tradition of Anglo-nationalism, understand they get the cues Hoover's dropping. Subversives are also cultural subversives, people who are betraying the culture of America. So, well, FDR could be happy to have Hoover campaigning, talking about, yeah, we need to fight these subversives. There was a second meaning that Hoover intentionally put in that his conservative audiences picked up upon. That, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, there might be people who are sympathetic to foreign governments, but there's also those Americans in places of power who we want gone because we don't like what they mean for traditional culture liberal Catholics, liberal Jews, liberal Protestants, artists, 
people who are more highly educated, people who are introducing new ideas rather than celebrating old entrenched ideas. These people need to go as well. This is the fifth column as well. And here I believe we have a moment in American culture where conspiracy theorizing saturates. And I believe it's different than previous moments of conspiracy theorizing because of the mass media component. And then this lays the seeds for what happens during the Cold War. You're kind of outlining that that sort of paranoid style because when you when you have a hidden enemy, then then you can never defeat him. You can continue fighting the hidden enemy for as long as you need to sustain, you know, whether it's your law enforcement project or your wall building project or whatever sort of endeavor you might be upon, if you are doing that in the face of an enemy that can neither be discovered nor defeated, gives you a lot of fuel for your campaign. And all the evidence you need is, hey, look, they're talking about new ideas, and those are unfamiliar, so therefore they're foreign, and therefore they're disloyal. You know, I'm thinking about the ways that this connects to sort of the House Un-American Activities Committee and all of the kind of things that spool on from this. I, I want to focus back on sort of the tail end of your of your thought there, the role of the media in all of this. And, and one of the surprising things that I learned from your book is the degree to which Hoover was, you know, as we've talked about already, a, a media operator, you know, participating in, in the production of media. Could you give us some examples of things that the FBI had its hands in that folks might be surprised to discover? A lot of films from Warner Brothers and Paramount Pictures and 21st Century Fox, uh, major blockbuster productions. At this point, people wouldn't know the names because they're so old. But in 1935, Warner Brothers made a film called G-Men, which the FBI seemed to just co-create with them. And then you move forward, there's a, the very first movie about the atomic bomb is called The House on 92nd Street. The FBI, there's a box of material at the National Archives where it's the FBI going back and forth, uh, talking with the studio about how this film is going to work and how the FBI is going to get credit and how the FBI should be um, portrayed as the protector of the atomic bomb because Hoover wanted to associate the atomic bomb with the FBI uh, to make the FBI, to, to essentially to further militarize the FBI and make people link the, the awesome power of the atomic bomb to the FBI. Uh, and then in the early 1950s, they make a string of films that, I mean, just like before, but continue this project of telling audiences to start viewing Hoover or to continue viewing Hoover as uh, this protector. Kind of like in 1984, how they... How, Exactly how they projected the villain of 1984 as, you know, the big brother who like knows everything uh, and is paternalistic and is looking out for you. It very, it's a very similar message about J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, he's out there. He's watching you. He's keeping you safe. But don't ask questions because the communists ask questions. And if you ask questions that might leave him vulnerable and then we'll all be in trouble. So it's very important that you obey and not ask questions. It's a frightening image, and you recognize it worked because how terrified the FBI had made people to begin with. And they did not know 
how to make sense of the situation because it was difficult for them to distrust Hoover because Hoover was allegedly a loyal servant of FDR, right? The chief of the New Deal. He was there from the beginning. And so when Truman, in a sense, gets turned on uh, and the New Deal is framed as a communist conspiracy, it Maybe you're mad at uh, the House Committee on American Activities, but people by and large were loyal to Hoover. And that loyalty came from not recognizing that he orchestrated the overthrow, essentially, of the New Deal, and also the image that cinema projected upon him as being this guy that you can trust. You know, and conversely, the censorship says a lot. Uh, the, the types of projects that the FBI did not want people to see anymore. And so, for example, uh, It's a Wonderful Life was targeted as being communist propaganda and evidence of the type of things, the type of movie that needs to get censored because they thought it was, it was too nice to the working man of George Bailey and it was too inhospitable to Mr. Potter. It was too unflattering to the bankers. That's really fascinating. So there, in addition to, there's a production arm and there's a censorship arm and a rhetorical arm of, of the FBI under Hoover. What else were they censoring? Well, I mean, there's, there's books on how genres changed under Hoover. And so there's a book on how, um, I think it's called Joyce and the G-Men. Uh, and it's about how modernism as an artistic form changed under the FBI because the writers um, of the genre were surveilled and were harassed and a chill happened and they they understood that they were under surveillance and I mean to me that just shows how far they wanted the FBI was willing to go they went after anybody who was creating media because media had a change had a chance it was this attitude of if we go after anybody who was making media then we can control public culture. And they had they had favorite genres of their own. You mentioned the sort of the gangster picture, the noir film. These are all things that they were engaged in producing. Yeah, and so you see the you know you see by the 1950s, uh, films like It's a Wonderful Life disappear, and they are replaced by uh, westerns and film noir and true crime. Films with guns, right? What they want is media about guns. And what they do not want is media of any genre that they would call sentimental. I think a person can simply say that's about, you know, humanity. And if you keep audiences flooded with shoot 'em up stories, you can get people not asking questions that the nationalists don't want asked questions about uh, capitalism or the economy, questions about uh, race hierarchy or gender hierarchy. In a sense, questions about power. If people are always watching shoot 'em ups questions about power are can be evaded. And questions about J. Edgar Hoover personally too, right? Like these are, these are national projects, but they're also, you know, in defense of his own self-interest. Yeah, so he enters a committed relationship with his number two, which is scandalous to begin with, but who's also gay, which is, you know, two scandals simultaneously. And that starts in the 1930s and goes on till he dies in 1972. And so it's many decades of their partnership 
and it gets masked by this media because on one hand he surrounds himself with you know this media of gunfire and so it gives him this tough guy heterosexual persona and then secondly the media also says don't question hoover don't criticize hoover don't uh, scrutinize Hoover because that's what the communists want and therefore our national security will be endangered. And so therefore he creates this very big closet because people are going on thinking he's straight and at the same time not looking twice at him and he's allowed to barricade himself through walls of security. And so people can't get a sense of who this guy is. It's so interesting to think about Hoover's role over multiple administrations and the role of the FBI over multiple administrations. I mean, we can't have this conversation without acknowledging that we are in an election year, that there's a lot of talk in certain quarters about something called the deep state. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there is something to this to this idea that here we have whole decades of American life under the influence of an unelected person um, who maintained an institution and, as you say in the book, committed a documented series of conspiracies to hide who he was from the public, to manipulate the media, to you know enact early sort of oppressive forms of surveillance on the citizenry. What do you make of Hoover's legacy in this regard as we think about how the American state is constituted today? I cannot get past um, that J. Edgar Hoover mentored Roy Cohn and Roy Cohn mentored Donald Trump. I feel like when I hear Trump talking, I hear Hoover talking. In Hoover, in, sorry, in Trump's RNC speech in 2016, he pledged that his administration would be committed to Americanism. That is a term no one uses anymore. <laughs> but that is a term that J. Edgar Hoover used all the time. And Americanism was shorthand for Anglo-American nationalism. Uh, and for, for Hoover, that's clear. And I believe that uh, Trump uh, has done the same. It's a sort of dark place to leave it there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and it doesn't stop with Trump. I mean, in the 1940s, uh, Hoover is working with Ronald Reagan, who goes on to be president. He's working with Richard Nixon, who goes on to be president. He, he gets letters of support from Gerald Ford, who goes on to be president. <laughs> so I, I, it's my impression that Hoover tanks the New Deal and he creates the new ground and the new reality that allows the Republican Party to come back after Herbert Hoover. And this new Republican Party, with Richard Nixon as its first vice president under Eisenhower, is dancing and working with the reality created by J. Edgar Hoover. And it becomes a game to maximize power and to kill the New Deal. And I believe J. Edgar Hoover taught this bench of Republicans how to play their, how to play their cards. And so the themes that work between Hoover and Nixon and Reagan and Trump. I believe why we see the, there's recurring patterns and those patterns are because they're tried and true. And it's almost like having a playbook. If you see your opponent do X, say Y, because we know the American audience is going to respond. We know that there are people out there who are going to be reactive to these patterns of speech. 
and these kinds of in this kind of media and and these kinds of activities it is interesting how much of the material in your book is i mean it feels familiar right there's billboards with hoover on them there's film reels that he's participating in to discover that he was a kind of law and order celebrity i think goes a long way to explain the phenomenon that you're describing yeah i mean nixon campaigns on law and order uh, reagan does trump obviously does and it, it, it's code, right? Because we're not talking about white collar crime. We're not, we're not talking about enforcing law after, to go after white collar criminals. So it's a particular type of law to create a particular type of order. And my suspicion is the law that they are re- referencing is, is the stuff of uh, realism, is the stuff of the eugenics, is the stuff of there is a master race, and it's supposed to dominate the subordinates. And that is the order that they are promising. One thing I wanted to ask is, thinking about back to the beginning of the conversation, your time in the archives and the sort of vast trove of, of J. Edgar Hoover material that we have available, are you continuing work on J. Edgar Hoover? Are you still returning to that archive uh, in future projects? Uh, it's been a while. I would like to get back there. Right now, I'm working on a project on Jeff Sessions. And he, so he gives two speeches in 2018 as attorney general, where he breaks from his prepared remarks, and he's speaking to sheriff's groups. And he applauds them and celebrates how they, are, they represent and they safeguard Anglo-American history and heritage. And I, when I heard him say that, and when I heard that he said that, they, that sheriffs preserve the Anglo-American history of law enforcement. It just rang. Like, I just rang. I was like, this, this is it. This is what we are talking about. Uh, and after the first time he said it, there was, there was pushback. And he said, oh, all I meant was common law from England. Uh, the second time he said it, there wasn't even pushback. But that, Ang- that Anglo-American history, that Anglo-American heritage is this Anglo-Saxonism idea that there is a master race. Uh, and so I'm, I'm working on fleshing out those ideas. That sounds really interesting. I think with that, we should probably wrap it up. Before we go, I want to say thank you so much, Stephen, uh, for joining us today. I have really enjoyed spending some time with your book and getting a glimpse into the J. Edgar Hoover archives and thinking about how where we've come from influences where we are and where we're going. Well, thank you very much for having me. I uh, appreciate the help uh, I've gotten from MSU Press, and I thank you, thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to have this conversation. Dr. Underhill's book, The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find out more information about the book on its Facebook page at Manufacture of Consent. And Dr. Underhill is on Twitter at S underscore M underscore Underhill. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trego, Madija Gos, Dante Smith, Kylie Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Thank you.